0: Hi, I'm Ali Muldrow, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency, radio modulation. Good afternoon, Madison. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow, and this is A Public Affair. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Happy solstice. Today, we are interviewing uh, author of The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness, Megan Work. Megan, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing pretty good, actually. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Oh, thank you so much for writing this book. I think immediately upon reading the, the introduction of this book, I felt like I had never read anything quite like this um, in terms of you capturing your entire prolonged journey with what it meant to you to experience illness. Um, I, I'm wondering if you can kind of let our listeners know Where this starts for you, and you—I've heard you talk about this before. You say it's a very hard thing to kind of pinpoint um, where it starts, but you did notice a a significant transformation in your health in your in your early twenties. What was that like, and and what what happened initially?
1: Oh, it's so fun to talk to someone who's heard me talk about it before. But yeah, it's one of the points I make in the book is that if usually an illness narrative or a story of getting sick has a very dramatic beginning. Mine was very murky, very mysterious. It was like walking into water a step at a time and then suddenly you know, the deep end comes and you sort of fall in. Um, So exactly as you say, around um, when I was 21, I graduated from college, I started having strange neurological sensations. I was walking up and down stairs and having a really bad sense of where I was in the air which was strange to me because I had been a gymnast, right? We've all heard about that sense of, um, you know, air sense that that someone like Simone Biles had, and I really had that, and all of a sudden I could barely walk up a flight of stairs without feeling dizzy. Strange electric shocks would flicker all over my body like someone was sticking tiny pins in me, and then drenching night sweats, like I would have to get up in the middle of the night and change my shirt. and I was, you know, in my 20s. This is something we associate with menopause, right? I was not going through menopause. So what was causing this? Yeah, and it kind of came and went for about a decade, and then I got really sick in my early 30s. And can you
0: talk about kind of what folks thought you had initially or kind of the different ways you were brushed off? Um, I think it's really interesting, particularly. Uh, the way women are kind of um, told that their pain is normal, um, that it is part of like menstruation. Um, I think there was a a gendered and an age-related component of why people felt like you were a perfectly healthy, able-bodied young person who might just be a bit of a hypochondriac.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, I think one of the reasons I wrote this book was because I realized that The way that we think about healthcare in this in our society makes it very hard for people with chronic illness in particular to get diagnosed. And so what happened to me was that I actually have great doctors who are very sympathetic, very open-minded. But I went to them and I said, look, all these strange little things are happening. And they did baseline medical tests, which all looked great. And I think because of certain inherent sort of ideas we have about women being unreliable testifiers to their own experience, and also stereotypes about thin people being healthy and overweight people being unhealthy. My doctors would say to me, you're really thin, your cholesterol looks great, you're in great health. And I would say, well, I don't know, I have very little energy, I have lots of pain all over my body, but they were really looking at like my cholesterol and my body weight. Um, And I was young, so they assumed that I was anxious. I had a really stressful, really taxing job. And so when my doctor said, look, you're probably not sleeping enough, you're probably really stressed, I took that at face value. And so I lost a decade of my life to that act of incuriosity, right? And I think that's part of why I write this book is because I know that I'm not alone and that there are millions of people, and I interviewed about 100 of them, who've had very, very similar experiences, especially young women. Why does this matter so much right now? It matters right now in particular because we're witnessing a rise in what some researchers called a silent epidemic of autoimmune disease and similar chronic illnesses. Um, We know that autoimmune disease overwhelmingly affects women. So one of the things I was really interested in is that actually doctors who are faced with young women in their offices were saying, I feel fatigued, I feel brain fog, I feel joint pain, it comes and goes, should absolutely be thinking about autoimmune disease and other immune-mediated diseases instead of saying you're stressed, right? But that family history, I never got questions about is there a family history of autoimmune disease, I never got that lab work, and that's what we need to start to change.
0: I wanna ask you about that that turning point, but I wanna make sure if folks are just joining us, you know that you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. My name's Ali Muldrow, I'm your host. This is a public affair. And today we are so lucky to be talking to the author of Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness, Megan O'Rourke. Uh, I am so sorry, I totally lost what I was just saying. If you would like to join the conversation or have any questions or comments, give us a call at 608. 608- 256-2001 extension 9 shout out to Teresa and Michelle because they'll make sure that you get to participate in this conversation and seriously if you are a person who is struggling with this right now you're wondering yo when did you get an accurate diagnosis when did you get know the test that you need. What was the test that you actually needed? Megan O'Rourke is a writer, poet, editor, podcaster. She tackles challenging topics in her work, including grief and chronic illness. She is the author of the memoir, The Long Goodbye. And today we're discussing her latest book, The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness. Megan, what was kind of the turning point for you in getting accurate information. Um, and before you got to that turning point, did you ever question your own mental health? Did you wonder like, is this all in my head? Am I making this up? Um, you know, what, did family and friends think of this as attention seeking behavior? what what was it like for you um, when people didn't believe you, when people didn't take you seriously, particularly medical professionals?
1: Yeah, these are great questions, Ali. Thank you for asking them because I think they impact so many people's lives. So, the book tells my own story in combination with research into this what I'm calling this silent epidemic of chronic illness. And as you've just intimated, the decade when I was looking for answers and not being met with validation and recognition was incredibly painful and incredibly lonely. And in the face of medical experts who whom I believed in, I believe in science, I believe in medicine. Um, but in the face of their saying to me, look, we think this is anxiety, we think you're stressed, You know, maybe go for a run, talk to your psychiatrist. I began to doubt every sensation of my own, right? That the problem was during this period that not only was I suffering from the pain and the difficulty of the illness itself, but the second pain was the pain of loneliness and, becoming, and beginning to disbelieve myself. I actually interviewed a young woman who told me that she got really sick with the flu when she was 11. So did her family. Her family recovered, and she never recovered. So they start taking her to doctors. She had um, a kind of autoimmune disease that was just beginning, and it was hard to see on tests. So the doctors couldn't find anything, and they said to her parents, we think you should treat her with tender, loving neglect. Right. And so for a decade, she was treated this way. And she said to me when I interviewed her, I've now been diagnosed with all kinds of autoimmune diseases. But that decade where no one believed me has forever impacted the way I believe I can make myself known to others. So the crisis that we're experiencing is not just a crisis of the diseases themselves, but a crisis in the kinds of narratives we tell about illness and the ways in which our medical system is or is not set up to um, treat them. So. Part of what I'm calling for in the book is reforms that I think we really can make so that we start to listen to patients and we start to center patients. So that was a long answer, but to get to your second part of the question, when did I get a diagnosis? It was about a decade and a half after my first noticeable symptoms, if you can imagine that. So I really lost a decade of my life to this uncertainty and this kind of self-questioning. I eventually was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, autoimmune thyroiditis. and it turned out that that was not the end. That was actually the beginning. That was like the middle of the journey. And I'll just quickly let you know that I ended up with three other diagnoses, um, including a genetic condition, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and Lyme disease, which had gone missed. When I was treated for the Lyme disease, I got not better the way an able-bodied person means better, but functional, had my life back, had the possibility of joy back. Um, And I think that's Part of why it's so important to listen to patients is sometimes there is an answer that can really help uh, the person at hand.
0: I so appreciate you speaking to like one, the experience of, of finding the, the diagnosis and really fighting for yourself um, in order to, to get a series of diagnoses. And you talk about this in the book, um, you know, finding doctors um, who are working really well with you and your insurance switching and, you know, just the, the obstacles and barriers. that This book starts from a, a place of, like, here were the obstacles um, to me, you know, navigating my health, navigating my body, navigating my wellness. Um, but you have a line in the book that is really interesting to me in terms of how your mental health was impacted. or And you kind of speak to mental health in a more broad way. But basically, you say something like, you know, I I told you this, that I highlighted so much of this book that like my highlighter ran out by the end. By the end, it's just these like little faint, you know, iridescent like flickers on on lines. But you say, um, if you have a a lot of stress or a lot of anger, that that can actually cause inflammation in the body. And that um, if you had been really mad at yourself for a very long time, that it was damaging to your health, and that there, that you have to consider forgiving yourself. Um, and I I thought that that was so yeah. such a, a potent thing to say because it's not something people say very often. Was yeah. there a process that you had to engage in that was um, forgiving yourself, that was you know seeing yourself as credible again, was you know reuniting with your body um, and your interpretation of the way you felt. Um, and for, for other folks who are, who are maybe struggling with, is this real or is this in my head? Um, how, how did you like find, figure out once and for all, this is something real, this is I'm not making this up, this isn't make believe, I'm not crazy, um, there's something happening to me.
1: It isn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, this, this experience that I had has made me feel, um, has made me into a passionate advocate for others. Which is to say that what I wish most, you know, when I look back on my experience, was that I could teleport back in time to my 22-year-old self and say, believe yourself, believe in yourself, right? Have the faith that you know something about your body that no one else can access. So one thing I always say to those people out there still struggling is you really do have information that no one else has. You know if you feel just a little bit different. You're going to question that feeling, and you're going to wonder if you know it. But if you've got that inkling, you've, you're you onto it. You're onto something, and you have to trust yourself. Um, my own experience, to be honest, it's ongoing, right? Like if I have a flare now, I get sucked back into the cycle of, is this real? You know, I had a really bad flare in November. And I remember at one point you you get, it's kind of like the weather changes and you don't notice. And at one point I remember just thinking, oh, maybe when you're middle-aged, you just can't read after 3 p.m. Like that must just be what happens, right? And and I came out of (laughs) flare. Sure enough, I could read and have attention until the evening. But when you're in it, it's subtle. So you do have to, um, I think, keep records and keep notes for yourself. That's a really practical piece of advice I have for people is, you know, rate your symptoms every day, and that will tell you a lot. But I did have to – the quest of this book is not the quest of the traditional narrative of going from being sick to being fully better. Rather, the quest is the quest of accepting that I am was going to live with these diagnoses for the rest of my life, and that I was going to have to forgive myself, as you said, and kind of learn to not be so hard on myself. Um, it's very easy for me to feel like this is all my fault. When I was in my 20s, because I had no answers, I often thought, okay, I'm eating wrong, right? As women, especially, were acculturated to feel like we're always eating the wrong way. And so I just thought, oh, it's because I ate pizza, it's because I ate sugar, Um, And so a lot of the work of forgiveness has been trying not to read too much of the illness into my biography, while at the same time, and this is the really tricky nuanced part, being alert to the very real triggers and stressors that make the illness worse. Because one of the things we do know about things like autoimmune disease and any diseases that are kind of impacted by your immune system, long COVID is actually one of them too, is that they can be worsened by stress. Now, that doesn't mean it's all stress and it's all in your head. It just means that you have to believe in a biological reality, and then you do have some power, which is to figure out what makes your condition worse, what makes it maybe a little more manageable, and then that's where the medical world has to step in and figure out, okay, how do we get to the bottom of it, if that makes sense. So it's a really tricky path, right? Because we're at the, you know, I talk about different concepts of disease in the book, The easiest kind of disease to understand is the one that's like strep throat, it comes and maybe it just goes. The harder kinds of disease for us to conceptualize are ones where the infection comes and then it starts to interact with your nervous system and your mind and stress in a really complicated way. That again, doesn't mean it's all in your head, but means that there's kind of work to do to uncover the different factors exacerbating it, if that makes sense. I think one of the
0: things that was really interesting about your book was thinking about where doctors run out of explanation, right? Like kind of the, the missing information about certain kinds of illnesses. And you, you talk a little bit about the illnesses that we are all familiar with. We would never for a second think are not real or made up or in somebody's head. And then you talk about kind of like, where the run the road runs out for for certain kinds of conditions, um, what does it feel like? I guess to have a, a series of diagnoses that are not you know things that and I would say I would take Lyme's disease out of this because I think once you get that diagnosis we do know a lot about Lyme's disease, um, but for other areas of your health even once you knew you had the diagnosis um, the inf- it wasn't necessarily like there was readily available information that was easily accessible in terms of how to navigate your life with with your condition. Um, yeah. but how have you how have you navigated kind of that that lack of information or that lack of e- research or the lack of kind of people understanding and being able to you know if you say I have, this issue with my thyroid, people don't necessarily go, oh, yeah, of course, I know exactly what that means. So how much time do you expend explaining? And do you, you know, do you follow the research? Do you sit around hoping that you're going to know a lot more about your condition, um, you know, in the near future?
1: Yeah, these are great questions. So the category of illness that I mostly focus on in the book is um, is what are so-called invisible illnesses. So the invisible kingdom of the book is this, what I imagined at some point when I was really lonely and alone and feeling very down, I realized that again, I was one of many. And that as disempowered as I felt on my own, that if I were to write this book and really start having this conversation that many people are already having on social media and in patient groups, that if we came together, we could really be this kind of invisible kingdom. I know it sounds a little hooky, but I took a lot of strength from that in the in the moment. Um, and one of the problems with invisible illnesses is that they're hard to see, they're hard to measure. I remember when I was pregnant with my first son after getting much better, I had a terrible rash on my body and I entered the doctor's office and people ran over to me. The nurses, the doctors were so sorry, this looks terrible. How can we help you? What can we do? And one said, oh poor baby. And it was a terrible rash. It hurt, it itched. But It was nothing compared to what I had gone through. And I just was such a dramatic illustration of the challenge when things can't be seen and when we lack frameworks for them. So part of what I try to do in the book is offer that framework. What's going on with these messy diseases that come and go and they don't, they're not easily resolved? And as you say, I, I talk about these three disease concepts. One is sort of the specific disease entity, again, like strep throat or the flu, where we used to think it came, it's very specific, it acts the same way in everyone's bodies, and it either kills you or you get better. Then we have on the other side of the spectrum, mental illness, right? But in the middle, there's all these, what we're starting to understand is that a paradigm, an emerging paradigm of kind of modern medicine, 21st century medicine is going to be the ways in which infections like COVID can, or SARS-CoV-2, the virus, can leave complicated aftermath in the body. And, you know, as much as we do know a lot about Lyme disease, we don't know very much about the fact that about 20 to 30% of people who contract Lyme disease and even are treated in an ideal manner end up with long-term symptoms, very similar to long COVID. It's like long Lyme disease. Those patients were absolutely dismissed and discredited for decades because science really thought that if you got an infection and you got treated, you got over it. But again, we've seen very vividly dramatized in, in this pandemic that it's not always that way. And in fact, one researcher I spoke to at New York Presbyterian Hospital said to me, I think people are walking around with long influenza and you know long Epstein-Barr virus. So part of what's really confusing in the book, as you've just gotten at, is that You know, a lot of people who end up with these murky autoimmune diseases or other things, autoimmune diseases are often triggered by viruses, not exclusively. They can also be triggered by chemicals, by food. We don't know exactly what triggers them. But you're entering this realm where I think a reason that medicine struggles with these illnesses and that we struggle to recognize them and validate them is that there's multiple pathways to getting sick. And often people have what one researcher described to me as successive hits. Her name is Amy Prohl, and she does amazing work on how pathogens trigger immune problems. So if you're walking around and you're always a little low energy and you never quite feel good, it may be that one factor is one of these viruses that have entered your body and kind of altered your immune system. There's other reasons too, But so it's murky, right? We don't have that clear cut. Here's the cause. Here's the treatment. It's messier, I sort of talk about 21st century is going to be the era of personalized medicine, of the gray areas, right? Where we start to dig in and look at the many layers that are contributing to poor chronic illness, poor health yeah. Do you
0: feel like the experience you had in navigating your health made you more critical of our approach to medicine um, to the way we you know to the american variation of insurance and health insurance um to the way we train doctors do you think you became more sensitive um to to how our our medical in our medical industrial complex works and what it means for women and you are a mother um you you have multiple kiddos um <laughs> What was it like to to navigate like healthcare um from the vantage point you had established through being chronically ill? Absolutely. While-
1: yeah. 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 So, you know, I was the child of um Irish Catholic baby boomers basically. And I think both being baby boomers and Irish Catholics, there's a lot of faith in experts. My parents were raised just thinking, whatever the doctor says, the doctor is the expert, right? My great uncle is a doctor, another was a dentist, another was a lawyer. That that expert class, you just listen to them, right? So my mom would take me to the doctor and then the doctor would be like, you're fine. And you know, that was that, right. We went for broken bones. So I entered the medical system with that attitude. Like the doctor told me it was all in my head. It was probably all in my head and I was being fussy. right? Like my mom to say, Oh, you're a little bit like princess in the pea. And so it absolutely over the decade and a half of both experiencing illness. And then the almost um, eight years that I spent reporting this book, because I'm a journalist by training. And so when I was, kind of realized that I really was sick, I thought this is a really fascinating question for someone like me who's a journalist and a cultural critic, which is we live in a hyper-diagnostic age where we actually diagnose almost everything, right? Like you can get a diagnosis for ice cream headache. It has a name, ganglion neuralgia, right? And, and yet here I was wanting a diagnosis and I couldn't get one, right? So why is that? And the... You know, answers that I lay out in the book, it again, does kind of a lot of offering of frameworks for the problem we're facing as people with chronic illnesses that are poorly understood. Is that our medical system is best at acute care and it really struggles with the chronic illness part of care. It also is set up to measure illness, dating back to the advent of the germ theory in the 19th century, and that which comes along and says, look, every disease is caused by a specific pathogen, instead of being about the host, right? In in pre-modern medicine, we often thought the person's temperament or constitution could affect the illness. Um, But germ theory comes along and says, no, 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 here's the cause, here's the treatment. Um, And so in this, and furthermore, our system is very siloed, it's very divided. There's lots of specialists. They don't always talk to each other. And the kinds of illnesses that I have and that I'm talking about, people, might have neurological symptoms and joint symptoms and eye problems, right? So you're kind of trundling from doctor to doctor, specialist to specialist, and none of them are exactly talking to each other or really engaged with getting to the unified bottom of the problem. So to the degree that I'm critical of the medical system, it's as a system, not of the science behind it, right? I'm a believer in science, a believer in evidence-based medicine, but I think it's appropriate for us to look, pause and look at the system and ha- ways in which it's hampering doctors and clinicians from delivering the kind of care that they really want to deliver, that they can deliver in, in crisis, right? Um, one person I was just talking to said, you know, it's a crisis care system, it's not a chronic illness care system. So I think for all of that, I had to learn how to become an advocate for myself and also how to learn to work within the system so that when I was pregnant, uh, I really came to the pregnancies at that point, having been sick with that perspective. And the number one thing I learned from being sick is that it's not worth spending your time trying to persuade a doctor who's not listening to you to listen to you. You have to just move on. You have to find the person who can listen. And so I found amazing WANs who were very responsive, very understanding about myself, unusual, you know. And, and, you know, to go back to something you said earlier, part of the problem is that in a system of measurement, if you're in a body that lives at the edge of medical knowledge, no one knows how to measure that. You can't measure what's not, we don't know to try to measure So that's where there's this gray area where we need to start a conversation around how do we bring science to that space
0: and care? Well, and I think that's such a humble space and it's something we're not used to, right? We're not used to a doctor saying, um, but I did, I had this experience with my dad at one point. I asked a very specific question about his health and his long-term health. And without sharing too much information about Gardner Muldrow, without his permission, y'all, I'm just going to say his doctor was like, we don't know how, what, what, we don't know about that with people like him. Like in our estimation, he should no longer even be around. Um, And the fact that he has survived this long with this kind of health issue um, is is something that, you know, will be written about in medical journals. And I thought that was a very like humbling moment. I have to say, when I got to page 131 and you finally say, um, I realized I had found the doctor that I would stay with the uncertainties did not lead her lead her to believe me i was not ill they led her to believe science did not yet fully understand the contours of what was contours of what was making me ill um, i felt so much relief and at the same time i was like 131 pages it was 131 pages to get to this doctor um I I guess I wonder at this point in your life, what do you tell folks that they should look for in in a doctor? When should you know that it's time to move on? Um, For folks who are out there listening, if you're just joining us, we're talking to the author of Invisible Kingdom: Reimagining Chronic Illness, Megan O'Rourke. Yeah, what if you're if you think of and I think a lot of us don't think of like. Interviewing our doctor, right? Like I, w- I was similarly raised. My my mother is a, a nurse. My parents are also boomers. Um, you you don't need to ask a ton of questions about the side effects. You kind of trust medical professionals um, and and hope for the best, right? So so if folks are going to be more critical of who they're working with, of who their physician is, how how can folks do that in a way that's well informed?
1: Yeah. No, I mean this. One of the things I think about a lot is how would I do it differently, knowing what I what I now know. And I do think the number one thing is um, what I was saying about about in my experience. I never managed to persuade anybody or or take a broken medical relationship and where I felt the doctor wasn't listening to me or didn't trust me and turn it into a, a working one. What did work is if I met someone who was like, "Well, I'm not sure." you know, let's see if you really have this or let's look into this. But they fundamentally listened and were respectful and also wanted to make sure I was getting good care. That was a relationship I could work with, right? But I think a problem with our, for those of us at the edge of medical knowledge is that medicine likes to really have good evidence for what it's going to suggest, which we want. We want that to be the case, right? We don't want to needlessly take strong medications or have surgeries that aren't going to help us. But if there's not great evidence, then you're left with the choice of either doing nothing or taking a kind of exploratory approach toward thoughtful care without an algorithm, right? Um, David Petrino, who is one of the leads um, kind of looking into long COVID at Mount Sinai is somebody who basically has talked about you need when when you're facing a crisis like long COVID where it's prevalent, people are very sick and we don't have all the answers, you need to start making kind of informed decisions based on what you already know, knowing that you don't have all the evidence at hand. You just have to, otherwise you're leaving people to suffer without any help. So I do think depending on the nature of your illness, it's looking for those practitioners. I do think I talk about alternative medicine and other modalities in my book, and I do think really educating yourself on what might also help support you during this time. For me, that was acupuncture, was incredibly helpful to me. Um, And trying to become your own advocate, right? And just, again, trying to really return to what you know and what you think could help yourself and not letting yourself undergo medical gaslighting. If that's happening, you move on.
0: Yeah. Oh, I really appreciate the term medical gaslighting. I think that is something that folks, don't hear very often, and especially as somebody who has had three pregnancies, one that was particularly complex. I think you know, having having people feel listened to and heard and understood um, and cared for is is so incredibly important. This book is a New York Times bestseller, so I, I wanted to say it's a you know, Oprah loves this book. She said that this book proves that the pen is as powerful as the siphon soap. Um, <laughs> people have have really loved this book and i think part of the reason this book is so powerful is that when i look back at to the very brief period of time that i was pregnant with my third child right like that 40 weeks that was really rough um there was a point where i like did not have the physical strength to advocate for myself i could barely like get out of bed, um, until I had like a series of iron infusions, with I, which I've talked about before on the show. But that was, um, you know, like I, I initially got really bad care in terms of those infusions and scheduling them and kind of the loophole loops, my insurance wanted me to jump through in order to get them. Um, I think that one of the reasons that this book is so powerful is because you were really sick and you were still able to manage, you know, creating this incredible book, um, this incredibly researched, incredibly thoughtful book. How did you, I guess, navigate your health in writing this? I guess the, the more, you know, I, I don't want to say something that I think of as ableist, but I think there is the like, how did you find the strength to do this on top of what you were going
1: through? Yeah. Well, I think it's really important to say that, um, Although I wrote the book, parts of the book, while I was quite sick, most of the book was written after I was treated for Lyme disease. And at one point, I even say in the book, when I was at my sickest, I could have written the individual sentences in this book, but I could not have put them together into paragraphs that made sense, right? That one of my symptoms was brain fog and neurological, really, really profound neurological issues, really profound cognitive issues, actually. So... That was devastating to me because I was a writer, right? And so not only was I losing the ability to go out at night and see friends, I was young, but I was losing the very thing that gave my life meaning, which was the ability to, to write. So um, I am, though, a very, very stubborn person. <laughs> I think it comes a little from my Irish heritage. My dad was a very, very stubborn Irish-American fellow. And I, uh, I really don't like it when I feel that um, – People in authority are papering over a reality. That, that's the kind of thing that, that gets my blood going as a journalist. I'm like, ooh, there's a story here. Someone's, we're not looking at the whole truth. We're, we're looking at a convenient truth, right? So I think that yeah. I got that little bit of that bug in me that was like something's going on here and we're, 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 we're doing things out of convenience, right? We don't know enough about these illnesses, so it's convenient to say to people, this is all in your head. You know, it solves the problem for the, for the clinician, for society. If we say to people you're difficult, you're an attention seeker, we don't have to suffer, right? We've closed the door on their suffering, it's not our problem. And what I argue in this book is that actually there's millions of people suffering and we really do need to think about it because we can come up with answers. So I think that that sense of mission, not to be too corny about it, but it really was true. It was really true that I knew that I was not alone and that I was very much writing this book for the millions of others who need to be seen and heard. And that, in fact, I was one of the more lucky and privileged ones, right? As someone, sort of upper, I had some means, I to talk about going into credit card debt, I had put a lot of credit card debt on my credit cards, but I could do that and hope that it would work out, right? Um, I did have a job, I did a really good health insurance. and you know, at one point in the book, I interview Jack Cochran, who used to be the head of the Permanente Federation. And I say, look, if you don't have a support system, my husband was very supportive, great healthcare, a job. Then what happens to you? You know, this is so hard. I have to do so much work. I was spending a quarter of my work days a month, just contacting doctors and seeing doctors, right? I said, What do you do if you can't do that? And he looked at me and I will never forget this. And he said, the people who don't have your resources suffer terribly and they fall through the cracks alone. Right. And that just was so galvanizing to me in terms of like persisting through writing this book. Um, but again, I wrote most of it when I was already treated for Lyme disease and still going through things still, you know, in treatment, it's kind of got this spiral thing where I started writing it and then I undergo the Lyme disease treatment as I'm writing it. But I I think that sense of mission and that, you know, There's part of me that's an optimist, and that part of me looks at this problem and says, we've got a real problem on our hands. But I think there are things we can do to make the situation better. And it starts with storytelling and talking about it. Do you consider
0: yourself at this point, Megan, to be a disability rights advocate? Do Do you find folks who are navigating chronic illness and navigating disability look to you as a source of hope, as a source of triumph. I mean, you say these really powerful things, like so much of the story of how we talk about illness is about overcoming illness. Um, those are the stories we really like. And we don't talk about what it means to live long-term with, with an illness or with a chronic health issue. Um, how, how, how does How has the disability rights community responded to your book and how has that positioned you as an advocate and as an author?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. No one's asked me that question before. Um, I don't know how they've responded. I feel like they should respond to that. My sense is positively, um, I will be the first to say that I think my skills lie in storytelling and writing and less in um, the advocacy and activism that so many people do online so powerfully. Um, There's a wonderful hashtag called N-E-I-S Void. Um, that I think Brienne Venice created. And I may be mispronouncing her name. There's someone like Jennifer Brea who started Emmy Action Net. There's um, just so many people online who have really taken up that torch of activism and whose work has changed my life personally. And I'm more of a like sit at home and write my book kind of person. But I have, I think, as you can tell, the passionate I am a passionate advocate, right? And I try to do it through storytelling and words because I think that if we can reframe the story, um, if I can report on and write about these conditions that have often been marginalized, um, even something like chronic pain, endometriosis, fibromyalgia, um, myalgic encephalomyelitis, Um, even people with migraines, which is so well known and so well studied, you know, can go through some of these experiences of being marginalized. If I can write in the media, you know, as a journalist interested in these things, I think we can advance the conversation and have more people understand what it's like to live with illness that doesn't go away, and why we need narratives that acknowledge the ways in which we really do need certain kinds of social care for one another and certain kinds of safety nets. And it's, I think, foolhardy to pretend we can all go it alone at all times, right?
0: I so appreciate the way you spoke to that, like, balance of, like, who you are as as somebody who effectively advocates, but also who you are as an artist and a writer and a journalist and and kind of where those roads meet. Yeah. Megan, I think one of the most the interesting things for me in reading your book was thinking about the people in my life and family who navigate chronic illness, um, whether it be folks with diabetes um, or whether it be folks, you know, in my family who are, are are immune compromised, right? And what that has meant for our relationship during COVID. Um, you talk about in the book, you know, hanging out with a group of friends, watching Serena and, and Venus play tennis, which I'm like, get it, Megan. I like that you are like, I'm still out here living a life, y'all. I'm still (laughs) out here in these streets. Venus. like,
1: that's that's it,
0: man. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, I'm still watching feminist tennis, but uh, also one of your friends had a cold. And this cold that was like kind of a minimal thing for them became weeks and weeks of your reality. Um, What is it like, you know, especially in this time of the pandemic, to navigate friendships and relationships knowing that, what may be a cold or a sore throat or a couple hard days for somebody else can be weeks and months of, of your life. And, and how, how do you, you know, how, how do you navigate being cautious about that? And how do you also navigate like maintaining relationships in the face of that?
1: Yeah. It's so challenging. We're, we're at genuinely challenging, um, impasse. And I, I say that first because we're all, Someone, I'm sort of so mad about it that I that I sometimes want to stop and just say, look, let's acknowledge what's genuinely challenging, which is that some people really want to get back to life, right? And I get that. I want my sons to go back to having the world. But I think that um, one of the things that chronic illness teaches you is that what we wish for and what is reality are not always the same things and that Being chronically ill teaches you that you can have those joys. You can go see Serena and Venus play. It was really fun, we got, someone gave us their like courtside tickets. They're up in the nosebleeds and someone's like, hey, you want these? (laughs) Great, right? You can have those things, but you need to take precautions. Right now we can try to go back into a kind of pre-COVID era, but we can't pretend it's a pre-COVID era. We have to take a lot of precautions. We need to make medications available, Paxlovid, vaccination, et cetera. So we're not doing that, right? And one of the things that's so challenging is that I think we see vividly right now that people want to forget about the most vulnerable, because it's challenging. It's challenging to think about vulnerability. It's challenging on a, just a basic existential level, right? It reminds us of mortality, um, and it's challenging on a pragmatic level. What do we do for the response, Right? Do we just tell your room? like someone told me that today i was out and they were like well people should just stay in their room they you know they're immunocompromised (laughs) and i think people don't understand how many americans are immunocompromised so one of the ways i've dealt with it in my life is just i'm very direct um i've definitely annoyed people (laughs) during the pandemic in my life i've definitely had moments of confrontation with friends or family. But I think a lot of people around me, I feel very lucky in that, uh, really understand why I need to be careful and really why we all need to be careful. But I think the only thing we can do is speak the truth, not, not, not sugarcoat it, right? And the truth is we can't go back to how things were and some of us are more vulnerable but also be understanding of the human desire to avoid, even as it's a really maddening one, right? And start to try to dig into those more honest and truthful conversations. Find out what that meeting point is. I think for some people there is a meeting point, right? I do find that a lot of people just don't know very much about what it means to be immunocompromised, or how many people are, or how probably people in their lives are immunocompromised. And then once they see it, it really changes their vantage. Of course, some people are just more, you know, they're the unfixables.
0: <laughs> well, I think so. Some people are so far from this affecting them, right? Yeah. And I think about that with everything. Like I think about that with the conversations we have about race. I think about with that with the conversations we have about the LGBTQ community. I think your compassion is directly related to how far you get to be from yeah. from that community. Um, and yeah. and and I also think like has this as you've watched policymakers really struggle with the pandemic. And and the pandemic has, you know, I thought the pandemic was going to be this moment in which we would really recognize that we have to come together in the interest of public health. Um, And that has not been the way this story has worked out. It's been really divisive. It's been really political. Um, I live in a community that was the only community in our state of Wisconsin to continue masking through the entire school year. Um, does, Does your stance on how we navigate COVID um, is that is that altered by the fact that you are a person who who navigates being chronically ill and you're connected to communities that navigate being immune compromised as well as being immune compromised yourself? Um, do you think we should still be masking? Do you think our approaches with small children should change? Uh, where where do you where do you land because of the way you are impacted?
1: Yeah. I think it's both my experience as a chronically ill person and my experience as a journalist who's been reporting on long COVID and has a pretty good handle on the risks and realities of long COVID. And the risk is not small. It's not as enormous as sometimes some studies have suggested maybe, right? It's probably a little bit more in this, in this middle range, but it's anywhere from 5 to 30%, possibly even more of people who are getting COVID who end up with long-term symptoms that we don't know very much about yet. So separate even from, and and I guess what I would say is that when I do that reporting and I talk to researchers and they tell me that, I have a lived sense of what that means, of what it means to live with fatigue and brain fog and how it can feel like you're dead while alive. And I really don't want my children to experience that. On the other hand, I want my children to go to school. I want them to have play dates. I see they don't like wearing masks all the time. So I think this is a really challenging area especially around kids and masks. What I can say is this, absolutely we should be masking on planes and public transportation. It's just not that hard. It's temporary, it's short, we're mostly adults. It's not day in, day out. It's, you know, we could just be doing that for one another. We need to be having a much more public, vivid conversation about Ebusheld, Paxlovid, you know, uh, monoclonal antibody is what we do to kind of minimize the impact of COVID on everybody. We need much clearer public health policy around long COVID. We're getting there. Biden is doing some things. We need better ways of holding insurance accountable. We need more long COVID clinics. We need full-throated national commitment from everybody to the reality of long COVID, the gravity of long COVID, and the fact that we have the capability through science to understand and treat it if we put the will there. Right. And if I saw that conversation happening, I'd be much more sanguine about the desire to get back to to life, to normalcy. Right. But what I think is happening is that people haven't realized that COVID has changed everything, really has. And to get back to what we call normalcy means adapting, which is what we're good at. Let's do it. Let's adapt. Let's recognize reality. And then make those adaptations. We get hung up on masks in school, masks, in schools. Well, okay, that's a piece we have to figure out. But there's just this bigger attitude shift of let's adapt, let's name the problem, and let's put our resources toward fixing it so we can get back to the no masks in schools, right? But my sons have been masked this entire year because it's just there's the case the rates are too high. If they get really, really low, we would take the masks off, but the case rates have just stayed very, very high in us.
0: Thank you so much for, for speaking to that. I think so many folks need to hear that and need to hear that from somebody who is impacted and and connected to a community that is impacted differently than the way a lot of us see ourselves um, as, as impacted. So thank you so much for speaking to that. I absolutely loved your book. I It's so hard not to just be reading your book on air. I asked you before we got started if you would share a little bit from us um, that feels like something important important to you to, to share with the WORT public affair o- audience. We've got about five minutes left. So anything yeah. you, you wanna read to us, we'd love to hear.
1: Sure, um, I was thinking of reading something from the last chapter. Um, um, let's see, I'll just read a few sentences here and there from the last chapter. Um, Being ill is a social experience, as the poet John Donne realized. It is what the sociologist Arthur Frank calls dyadic, impossible to understand without thinking about the self in relation to others. Yet Western medical culture insists on the solitariness of illness. Everything about it intensifies the individualistic aspect, confining patients to hospitals where anonymity differentiates and isolates rather than embraces and unifies us in our interconnected humanity. The patient's identity is thwarted, silenced, distorted in a culture that does not recognize itself in its sick members. One of the most important discoveries I made in the process of being ill is that solitary striving, my American habit of self-focus, was in some fundamental way a degradation a degradation of the most powerful aspects of our lives, which now seem to me to be the, our interconnectedness and need of others. I look at my small sons and I see that they need me. And in that, I see what is most meaningful in the end, not children specifically, but the bonds among us. Um, I'll talk to you about, I was thinking about, you know the deepest meanings come from our contact with the portal between control and submission. This sense I had was not necessarily an expansive vision, but in its accuracy, it was for the moment soothing. As the poet Audre Lorde put it of living with breast cancer, my visions of a future I can create have been honed by the lessons of my limitations. But I was also aware that I felt this way largely because I was not as sick as I once had been. When I was at my sickest, there was little room for understanding, only for discomfort. My illness changed me, and as a result, I know more about embodiment than I used to. And some part of me is proud of that knowledge, which I raise to my lips like a bitter seed now and then, just to remember how it truly is, what this life really is about, behind the facade of daily pretense, new cars, school sing-alongs, seasonal decorations, emails piling up unanswered, bills to pay, and the sweet hugs of my children with their plump limbs and fluffy snowsuits.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And thank you for, for joining us for this conversation. Megan O'Rourke, I absolutely love the book Invisible Kingdom. If you want to join my book club and talk about this book with me, um, I would absolutely love to talk about this book to to a much greater extent. Yeah. Megan, you know, I, I guess the, the question is, where do you go from here?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So... I, I think, you know, we've been lucky enough to get to have this conversation with you. I could have talked to you for hours, especially because as I researched for this interview, I found all of these different, like, how to cope with long-term illness things that I was like, whoa, I wonder what she thinks about these strategies. Um, yeah. Some of them are like, ignore it and push through, and others are so much more nuanced than than that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what, is, what are the the major takeaways, you hope? Um yeah. Going to pu- push you forward into the next chapter.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think for all of us that we start with the recognition of others' realities, right? That we really learn to listen to people when they're suffering, even if we don't have all the answers to it. And my own strategy for living with illness has been a combination of when I'm doing well enough, not focusing on it, right? And focusing on the things that bring me joy. But having to stop and regroup as soon as the symptoms start getting worse, and that's usually my sign that I'm overdoing it or I've pushed too hard or I've stayed up too late, not done my self-care. I have a lot of self-care hacks, you know, that I live by and live with. And that's what's, you know, hopefully going to allow me to continue to write and to be a mother and to be an active person in the ways that I now can be a lot of the time. Um, but it's it's a constant – one of the things I say in that last chapter I just read from is that learning to accept your illness identity, as we say, is not a state. It's not a place you arrive. It's a process, not, not a goal, right? And it's something you're living with day in and day out.
0: Yeah. Oh, I think so many of us needed to hear that, Megan O'Rourke. Thank you so much for writing Invisible Kingdom. Thank you for joining us today on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is a public affair uh, huge shout out to Teresa and Rochelle who held it down in the studio today so that I could uh, do this show from home. Y'all are the absolute best. Megan, I hope we get to talk to you again soon. Um, and thank you for, for sharing Invisible Kingdom with us.
1: Thank you so much. This is a total pleasure. Thank you, Ali.
0: Six foot six, above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency, radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our
1: station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision.